E. Andrew Sandlin. Well, hi, everybody. I've met some of you already, and I hope to meet all of you. Some of you I already know, like Isaac. Um, probably know him better than I want to. No, not really. <laughs> God bless him. Faithful young man. Um, I have uh, known about Ezra for quite a while, worked closely with it. It's a real privilege when I get invited. I'm a d dear friend of Joe Boot, one of my best friends, and I think he would probably say that I'm one of his. And uh, he's a mighty man of God. I'm not sure if this is your first introduction to Ezra. For how many of you is this like either the first Ezra event or you just only recently learned about Ezra? Would you raise your hand? Okay, great. Nice number of you. I'd encourage you to uh, listen to the podcasts and buy the books and watch the videos and all of that cool stuff so you can develop a Christian mind and a Christian worldview. Now, you have like heard about that recently? Is that right? Okay. Um, well, so my task is to talk about one of the leading anti-Christian worldviews that you are going to encounter. And all of you know it, even if you don't know that you know it. You see, everything up until now, what Dr. Boot has inculcated, has taught you, is largely the positive force of Christian thinking, Christian worldview. I'm now going to take sort of the negative side. I'm going to become sort of like the dark side of the force. I'm going to present to you the dark side of the force. Um, the worldview I'm talking about is called cultural Marxism. One aspect of its thinking is called critical theory. And before your eyes glaze over in your after-lunch coma, I assure you that this is the most prominent worldview of the elites of Western culture. Now, first question. What are elites, or what is elitism? Not all at once now. You can raise your hand. Yes, sir. The few people in power that control a lot of the media and thinking? Yeah, that's very good. The people basically with cultural power. I don't generally mean football players and baseball players, though they could be that. I mean people in politics, and particularly in education, major universities, in Hollywood and uh, major media, these people are the opinion shapers. Now, there proportionately are not a lot of them, but their influence is greatly disproportionate to their size because they kind of hold the cultural levers. When they say and do things, it influences a lot of people. And when the bumpkins are watching television at night and... Uh, Somebody comes on one of the Sunday morning programs, one of these cultural elites, and they're watching and say, Justin Trudeau is such a mighty and great man. Yeah, he's got to be. I saw it on TV. Um, well, not quite that crass, but the problem is they're in a position to influence thinking. Most of them are uh, committed to a particular secular worldview. Now, some of you are saying, well, 
I thought the prominent worldview is secularism and neo-paganism. That's true, but there's a particular form of that worldview, and it's the one I'm talking about today. I think you'll understand it more as I go along. Incidentally, if you have questions, I hope to save plenty of time at the end so you can ask questions. Um, so let's take some terms that you may have heard about, even if you haven't heard of cultural Marxism before. How many of you have heard of white supremacy? Yes! Transgenderism. Wow. Toxic masculinity. That's Dr. Boot and me. Toxically masculine. <laughs> Black Lives Matter. BLM. Black Lives Matter. Okay. Reparations that should be paid, like to First Nations or uh, blacks or Hispanics. The Me Too movement. Yeah. How about uh, cisgendered? Cisgendered. Don't you just love that expression? Cisgendered. I'm bro-gendered and all the women are cisgendered, you see. <laughs> um, how about Christian nationalism when used as a negative term? Yeah. Well, so if you've heard all of these terms, you have encountered culturally Marxist thinking, even if you didn't know it, and even if the people employing this language did themselves know the language of cultural Marxism. This worldview was specifically devised to destroy Christian influence in culture and replace it with secular egalitarianism. Now, that's a really long word. This is an academy and not a camp. Now, you understand the difference, right, between an academy and a camp? I think a few weeks ago, I was with Dr. Boot, and I accidentally called this a camp, and he immediately reprimanded me. It is not a camp. It is an academy. Well, at a camp, you like have um, devotions and bonfires, and you play games, and you meet new people, and you have a fun time. And an academy, you can do all that stuff and, and, and have your thinking and life transformed because of the teaching. That's what this is all about. We're doing really life-changing, high-octane stuff here. Incidentally, I've talked about elites. So I want to add something quickly before I go on. There's nothing inherently wrong with elitism or being an elite. Every society will have its elite. Some people will be the cultural leaders. So the problem today isn't elites per se. It's that the elites are secular elites influenced by cultural Marxism. Would you like to know one objective of this particular event, this academy, is to train up a new generation of Christian elites. What one cultural theologian, R.J. Rastuni, called the spiritual aristocracy. Say, so what do you mean by that? That in 20 to 30 years, you, some people I'm looking at right now, after I am long gone, you will be the leaders in society. You will be leaders in education and politics and the media, but not like today's elites. But your thoughts will be shaped by the Word of God. That's what we're all about. That's why this is important. That's why right now counts forever. So I use the term egalitarian, which is the egalitarianism, which is the goal of cultural Marxism. Long word. So what does it mean? <coughs> egalitarian or egalitarianism? Anybody know? Well, it's actually sort of similar to an old word that was used of equalitarianism. 
Egalitarianism is the idea that everyone or everything in society in some way should be equal. So today, egalitarianism says that in men and women should in all ways be equal. Everybody economically should be equal. All gender should be equal. All ideas, basically, should be equal. That's what egalitarianism is. Basically, egalitarianism is the assertion that there should be no standards, no ultimate standards. Now, how did all of this begin, this cultural Marxism? How did it influence our culture? Well, let's start, first of all, with, um, I said uh, cultural Marxism. Let's start with the older Marxism, classical Marxism, some of you might be aware of. You probably have heard of Karl Marx. How many of you have heard of the 19th century German philosopher and economist, Karl Marx? Okay, good. More than I thought. That's great. Um, He lived in the early and mid-1800s at a time when the elites were becoming very secular. In fact, many of them were becoming atheists. Now, that's not true of the wider society at the time, particularly in Victorian England and in Canada here and in the United States. Most people were either Christian or heavily influenced by Christianity. But increasingly, that was not true of the elites. They had bought into ideas of people like Hume and Kant and other people before them. They were the really smart ones, you know. We're giving up belief in God. We don't have to depend on this guy in the sky for creation and all of this stuff. We can do it ourselves. Man is great. So they had given up on that. Well, so, but they had a problem on their hands. They were the inheritors of a Christian civilization. An imperfect one, but a Christian civilization. I mean, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Europe, Canada, and even the beginning colonial America and the United States was a Christianized society. And that's a good thing. I don't mean everybody was a Christian, or even most people were Christians, although there sometimes was the case. But that basically society was founded upon Christian ideas of right and wrong. The idea of the redemption of, uh, on the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. People at least nominally accepted that. Well, of course, the elites did not accept that. And therefore, they had to think through what would a culture look like that gives up on Christianity. Now, think with me here. How do we order a society when we no longer can believe in the Trinity? When we no longer can believe in God? When we no longer believe in the authority of the Word of God? Marxism was one of the absolute first attempts of an elite thinker to think through this issue of what a society should look like once it had gotten rid of God. I mean, Marx expressly wanted to create an atheistic society. For him, fundamentally, and there are a number of ideas I could talk about, but I'll mention one that he's most known for, and that is his notion of state socialism. Now, okay, another question. What is state socialism? This is a really easy one. What is, what is socialism? What is it? Yes, sir. Government control. Yes, government control, but particularly of what? Government control of the economy. Control of money. Now, for Marx, he said it's control of the means of production. Now, remember, this wasn't the information age. This was the industrial age, and there were factories all over. 
uh, in a lot of Western Europe, and certainly in England, factories all over the place. Well, his view is that there was all this inequality of income, a lot of rich people and a lot of poor people, and you need to get rid of that gap. And one way to do that, the only way to do that, is for the state, the government, to own the factories and basically to own everything else. And then they could dole out money. They would buy taxation or whatever. They would get all of this, force people to work, basically, and then they would just create everything for everybody. I mean, whether it was eggs or automobiles or bread or what have you, basically the government itself provided it, and the government extorted wealth in order to do that. Now, in doing that, Mark said, you can create the just society. How many of you here have ever heard that expression, social justice? Social justice, right? Well, it's come to mean something slightly different today, but Marx certainly would have believed in social justice, but for him, social justice was largely economic justice, which meant everybody basically had about the same amount of stuff. Now, there actually, uh, historically, have been a number of nations that have bought into this paradigm. The first major nation in the history of the world to buy into Marx's ideas was, it happened in 1917, October, Russia, Russia okay, which became the Soviet Union. Actually, the Soviet Union was larger than Russia, but Russia was the main part of it. And then the second largest, in fact, this actually became population-wise, the Largest in the late 1940s, another society became essentially Marxist, and that was China, China, Red China, and then all of Eastern Europe, and Cuba, and later on, particularly in the 60s and 70s, some places in Africa, and a few other places here and there. Marxist societies, where everything was owned by the government. Now, we have the hindsight... I don't think anybody here, except some of the older ones, some of the adults, were even born when the Soviet Union collapsed. It collapsed in the um, late 80s, <coughs> excuse me, early 90s. Would you like to know why it collapsed? Was there a great revolution? I mean, that's how the Russian Revolution, it's called the Russian Revolution, that's how Marxism was established in 1917, a great armed revolution. Well, that's not how the Soviet Union collapsed. Do you know why it collapsed? Because it was a failure. It was an economic failure. The same is true in China. Now, China is a very evil regime. It's autocratic. It's a tyranny. But China basically had to give up on strict economic uh, socialism and buy into a, at least a partial form of free markets in order to survive. In fact, probably the only purely Stalinist, classically Marxist regime left in the world is that vastly wealthy, beautiful country of... North Korea. Any of you here like to go visit North Korea? Where people are, most people are like surviving on grass. And if you don't agree with the government, you're thrown in prison and beaten and killed. Yeah, that's, that's, that is the end result and a naturally end result of Marxism. You want to talk about whether a society is successful or not and its philosophy is successful or not. One writer said this, count the bodies. Count the bodies. Would you like to count up? You would not like to count up. The millions of people killed, most of them intentionally, by just Red China and the Soviet Union, and then, of course, Eastern Europe. Millions upon millions upon millions starved to death and enslaved because of this particular philosophy. But to Marx, this was, of course, long after. Marx wasn't thinking about that. 
He never assumed that would happen. He said, oh, I'm going to be able to create the, the beautifully good society without God, the equal society. Now, for Marx, equality or egalitarianism was equality of results. The Bible teaches, and a part of the Christian worldview, equality of processes. Now, those of you that are taking notes, and all of the smart ones are, <laughs> believe in, the Bible teaches, process equality. Marxists and other leftists believe in results equality. Now, let's talk about the difference. And let's use a metaphor for this. Um, Let's say there is a high school baseball team in Toronto, and they want to raise a lot of money. And somebody has the bright idea, maybe one of the administrators, let's contact the Toronto Blue Jays and see if maybe during the fall months after the season, they're willing to play our high school baseball team in a charity benefit, and we'll charge it, and people will pay a lot of money, and uh, the Toronto Blue Jays will come, and they'll play for free, and it'll be great, and we will make a pile of money because... Thousands of people will come. We don't know how we'll keep them. And so sure enough, the Toronto Blue Jays say, why not? We're going to come do it. So they come, and then right a few weeks before the game, somebody says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. we got a high school baseball team. These guys are like your age. Good players. But I mean, these guys are pros. I mean, they can throw the ball 100. The pitchers can throw the ball 100 miles an hour. They can hit like hit the ball like 400 feet. This is going to be an absolute blowout. They're going to beat us like 37 to 1. And people are just going to leave early. So that's not fair. That's not fair. So to make the game fair, we're going to just sort of change the rules. So when, when we're up to bat, when the high school team's up, to, up at bat, we get five strikes. And two balls get to take a walk. And every time we cross the plate, that counts for three runs. And then when Toronto's up, when the Blue Jays are up and batting, one strike is a strikeout. And one out, go to the next half inning. And then things will be really fair. Now, is anybody thinking ahead here? If you want the results to be basically the same, you have to rig the rules of the game. You understand the difference now, right? If you believe in process equality, process equality, then things are equal and fair if everybody plays by the same rules. So Toronto plays, the, the Blue Jays play the high school team, and the game ends up being 17 to 1 or 17 to nothing. It was fair and square. It was a fair game as long as both teams play by the rules. That was fair but not according to Marxism and leftists. It's only fair if the game is like 17 to 16 or 17 to 15, so we have to rig the rules of the game. Now, Marxism economically is about rigging the rules of the game. Rigging, excuse me, rigging the laws in society in order to create equal or nearly equal results. Now, I want you to think with me for a minute. If you have equality of processes, if everybody plays by the same rules, you will not have equality of results. Do you know why that is? Why will there be different results for different people? This is really hard. You're going to have to think with me here. Because people are different from one another. Some work harder. Some just are naturally blessed by God more than others. 
Some can, some can stand up and speak like this and in front of a crowd, and some people, man, if to stand up, they would be shaking like this. But perhaps those people that would be afraid to stand up in front of a crowd are just great quietly with mathematics where it's all I can do to balance a checkbook. We've all got differing gifts and differing abilities. And in a fallen world, some of us give in to sin more than others. So this leads, if the rules are the same, this leads to radically different results. So don't assume, let's say just economically, that because somebody is really wealthy, well, that guy, he's like living in this mansion. It's like, took a $5 million mansion and they're like other people I know and they're just like in this little shack or they can't even uh, own a house. That's not fair. Well, how do you know that's not fair? <laughs> You'd have to know everything about their lives, everything they had done, everything about their background. You see? But for Marx, he doesn't believe and leftists in general do not believe in equality of processes. You've got to rig the game, rig the rules of the game to produce the same or basically the same results. Everybody understands that. Oh, by the way, I'll say this before I go on. When these societies <clears throat> were instituted, was there this sort of equality across the board for everyone? No. Now, most people were basically poor. But the party members, the elite... They had access to a few Western stores and highfalutin automobiles and nicer clothes and all that stuff. So Marxism, when implemented, doesn't actually create the egalitarian society. A lot of it is egalitarianism. And that is, people are basically mostly poor. Everybody understands that. All right, so that is like a quick whirlwind tour of classical Marxism. All of them installed by violent revolution. Violent revolution. All right, now let's get to cultural Marxism, which is another version of it. There were some younger Marxists who decided to revise Marxism, still Marxists and still studying his writings and still committed to him, his philosophy. But their view was different because they considered the problem in society to be different. Now remember from Marx... The real problem was wealth inequality, right? Some people had more than others. Wealth inequality. But for the cultural Marxists, the real problem is social inequality. Cultural inequality. Women were not considered to be equal with men. Homosexuals were not considered equal to heterosexuals. Racial minorities were not considered equal or treated as well. In some cases, like Foucault would teach, um, prisoners were not treated equally. Children were not treated equally. And there were these various groups in society that were largely marginalized that we had to bring in society and treat equally. To cultural Marxists, what, really, what people really needed was the freedom to be their true selves. The freedom to be their true selves. Cultural Marxists believe that society itself, traditional society, conspires to keep you and everybody else from the real person you are. And this is where sort of uh, a part of where authenticity culture comes from. How many of you have heard this word, authenticity? Or have heard anybody say this, I really like so-and-so, and I know she like does and says things that are sometimes inappropriate, but I really appreciate, man, that, that she is authentic. 
How many of you ever heard, if not those words, that kind of sentiment? You know what I'm talking about? Authentic. You got to be authentic, man. Don't be what anybody else wants you to be. You got to be your real self. You got to be authentic. Well, that's a rude an idea of, how many of you have heard of the thinker of Rousseau? Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and of course the Marxists, all of whom have been influenced by Rousseau, the authenticity culture. So the real revolution in society for the cultural Marxists, the real revolution does not need to be, and indeed should not be, a violent armed revolution. Remember like in Russia? 1917, you can see the black and white photos of the revolution in the streets of Moscow in 1917, Marxist soldiers with their guns against the government troops and they're shooting it out. No, 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 that's not. The cultural Marxists said, no, we don't need that. We need, and this is language sometimes attributed to a noted cultural Marxist, Antonio Gramsci. He probably didn't say this, though certainly the idea is correct, and it's this. Maybe you have heard this. How, did the, how does this cultural Marxism change society? They would say, the long march through the institutions. Write that down, emblazon it, write it on your forehead if you need to. That's one of the key things you need to understand about how cultural Marxism gains power in a society. The long march through the institutions. So rather than saying, we need a quick, violent revolution, we got to change it real fast, man, the cultural Marxist said, we have time. We don't believe in God. History is going to go on forever. We're good Darwinists. We're good evolutionists. So obviously, we have millions of years. We have time. So therefore, let us capture the major institutions of a society. Let us capture the public schools, the public universities, the, uh, the book publishers, the magazine publishers, TV, Hollywood, the major networks, the major news networks, and even the churches and the denominations. And little by little, if we can install our own people, who all have nice smiles, speak a lot about equality, and the problems of white guilt, or white supremacy, or toxic masculinity, and people will just nod their heads like little sheep and say, oh yes, and the state needs more power because it's terrible we have this virus, and if you really love someone, if you really love someone, you won't try to go to church and spread your germs. Everyone will stay home and do everything that the government says, and everybody smiles and is nice about it, and eventually sort of people will start thinking that way. And we won't need a violent revolution because in the end, most people in society will be thinking our way anyway. That kind of is how the cultural Marxists want to gain an impact and gain control in society. Essentially, cultural Marxism is committed to a liberation theory. And it's liberation not from, as Marx would say, the bourgeoisie, nice French word. Do you know, does anybody here know for Marx, there's the words bourgeoisie and proletariat. For Marx, what would the bourgeoisie be? Actually, the opposite. Yeah, no, that's okay. You're close. <laughs> it's basically the wealthy people, or at least the owners of the means of production. The people in power. The proletariat were the factory workers, you see. So the proletariat needed to be liberated from the bourgeoisie and gain power, take power. You kind of take power in all of these factories. You take over the factories. You install Soviets. You will now take over the culture and enslave all of these former ones that were enslaving you. But, 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 for the cultural Marxists, the enslavers are 
mostly the family and the church. The family enslaves you. I mean, your dad and mom tell you you can't sleep till 11.30 every day. You got to get up and go to school or got to go to homeschool. When you can't watch filthy, disgusting things on TV and you have to put your phone away. What tyrants they are. And you go to church and the preacher says you must repent if you sin. You have to repent, confess your sin, and turn away from your sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have to refrain from sex until marriage, as the Word of God says. And you have to be heterosexual, though that's not even great language either. Man with woman and woman with man, the, the biblical way. It's just, they're enslaving all the time. They're tying you up with all these rules and ropes. So what you need, what you need is liberation to be your true self. Let the true self in here come out. That's what the cultural Marxists are largely after. Women have to be liberated from husbands and from their family. So let's let the husband stay home and change the diapers. I want to go out and make a lot of money and decide what I want to do. And maybe even have a boyfriend on the side. Children need to be free from their parents' authority. Because the parents are the tyrants and they're just sort of carrying on old traditions that enslave children. And racial minorities must stir up conflict because of past grievances. And many of those are genuine grievances, by the way. But the cultural Marxists want to stir up conflict. And then homosexuals have to have the freedom to marry and demand approval. But I must say that in the end, and cultural Marxism is largely about destroying all hierarchies. Okay, are you awake? You guys awake now? What's a hierarchy? Yes, sir? A structured system. Okay, that's really good. This guy is smart. It's sort of a, a structured system, particularly a sort of descending system of authority or values. That's what a hierarchy is. Now, let's talk about there are illegitimate hierarchies for sure. There are sinful hierarchies, but there are godly hierarchies. I mean, the family's a hierarchy. I mean, according to the Bible, what is the hierarchy in the family? Yep, there is the father, the husband, and then the wife, and then the children. That is a well-established hierarchy. Can there be tyranny within that? Yeah, people are sinful. They can abuse that, but that is a biblical hierarchy. What's the biblical hierarchy in the church? Okay, but I'm, that's true, and we'll get to that fully. But I mean, within the church itself, of, of humans in the church, it is... What's that? The pastors, the church leaders, the elders, we would say, and then, of course, the congregation... Right? Is there a hierarchy in society? I mean, in politics, you bet. You have in the you have here a, a prime minister, a very gifted, virtuous, <laughs> not um, the prime minister, and then of course you have political parties and so on. And then you have basically the citizens. That's hierarchies, right? So basically, cultural Marxism is about destroying hierarchies, tearing down hierarchies except the one that they would lead. But I must say, and somebody here said it very well, in the end, who's at the top of the cosmic hierarchy? Who is? Who's the top of the hierarchy in all of the cosmos and creation? Who is it? Basically, cultural Marxists want to unseat God. When they're shooting at the family, when they're shooting at the church, trying to take everything down, really, they're trying to take God down. And even if they claim to be atheists... 
it's God they're really after. It's God they're really after. And the only reason they attack us as believers is because they can't directly attack God. They can directly attack us, you see. So, <clears throat> I think I'll employ here a little metaphor. I hope this will stick in your mind. This will help you to understand uh, cultural Marxism. Let's assume that there are hundreds of thousands of tiny seeds with great latent potential. All right, all of you smartmans here, what do I mean by latent potential as opposed, let's say, to patent or patent potential? What is latent potential? If something or someone has latent potential, what do I mean by that? Possible. Yeah, possible. It's not exercised. It's not expressed, but there is the possibility there of this being used for or this thing or person doing something. <coughs> Excuse me. That's latent potential. So these little seeds have latent potential. I mean, inside each of these seeds is the possibility of, let us say, a beautiful flower or a beautiful plant, stiff, looking very different from this little kind of small, ugly seed, but it's got amazing latent potential. And they're all on the ground, but the problem is that they're in this, underneath this frozen, nearly impenetrable soil of a Canadian winter like frozen. I just like here, I hear rumors that like it gets cold up here. Is that right? So I live in the great Christian state of California. <laughs> Not even close. And it doesn't really, except for on the high mountains, it doesn't really get cold there. I mean, certainly not like here. So, but all these seeds are in the ground. They've been planted. And there's this hard, impenetrable soil. And let's say this is way up, way up in northern Canada. What's up, the Yukon or, yeah, way, way, way up there. And there's like snow almost all, way up. And there's snow like all the time, right? And they can't, so they've got this latent potential. But guess what? It can never become patent. It can never come out. And so they're just like stuck. So what they need is a very sympathetic farmer that decides it's going to be a difficult task, but he's going to plow up that soil. He's going to get rid of the snow. He's going to use heaters to warm things up to give these seeds a chance to grow and show the whole world their beauty of blooming and of plants. Okay, you say... Okay, that was a nice little story. What in the world does it have to do with cultural Marxism? Well, there's a method to my madness. Each element of this has a meaning. The seeds are basically uh, people as they come into the world. We have all of this latent potential in us. All that we can be. Beautiful things, wonderful things. But the problem is that we have this impenetrable soil which keeps us pressed down, that keeps us from growing to express all of our autonomy. And that soil is basically traditional society, notably the family and the church, and other elements, but especially the family and the church. Because the family tells us how we have to live. And our dad, if he's a good dad, is a strong, gracious man, but he says you need to do this, and we do that, and mom too. And the church pastors and the leaders say, we're going to go in this direction. We believe the Bible is the word of God, and therefore you can do these things according to the word of God. If you want to be blessed, you will obey the word of God, and you'll be judged if you disobey the word of God. And so because 
of this that keeps us suppressed from doing what we want to do, being what we can be, of having our autonomy. So what we need is a sympathetic farmer to come along and plow up and break up that traditional society. Those dads. Break away their authority. Knock down the moms. Knock down or harm everyone else leading a society traditionally. In a church, the elders, for example. Now, I have a question for you. In the metaphor, what does the farmer represent? Yes, sir. A thousand bucks to you, sir. Collect it from Dr. Boot. <laughs> the, the government, the state. In cultural Marxism, the growth of the state is not an end in itself. And by the way, that's something that's important to understand. Some of our libertarian friends understand the government can be dangerous. <clears throat> They're obviously right about that. But they think that everybody that wants government power wants government power just to gain power. That's not true of the cultural Marxists. They don't just want to gain government power so they have more power. They want to gain government power to destroy traditional society and to destroy Christian culture, particularly families and churches. Everybody understand that? Okay. So, this is why not just the word justice and equality, but the word freedom or liberty has different meanings in these two systems. <coughs> so when cultural Marxists use the term liberty or freedom, do they mean the same thing as we mean? For instance, when we say liberty for the church, freedom for the church to stay open when everybody else says it has to be closed, freedom for the church to declare the truth of the gospel, that's liberty, that's freedom. Freedom for you to go to work if you want to, or not go to work if you don't want to. Freedom to believe if you want to, or not believe if you don't want to. We, we believe in that kind of liberty. But that's not liberty as it's defined by cultural Marxists. Cultural Marxists believe that liberty means freedom or liberty for you to do anything you want to do as long as it doesn't harm anybody else and overthrow the government. You want to be homosexual, you're free to be homosexual, and you're free to demand, to demand the right to marry and that other people approve of you. It's not enough to be a homosexual. It's not enough to be a lesbian. You can demand that other people recognize you and use your personal pronouns, personally chosen pronouns. You see? See the difference in the terms of liberty? According to Christian culture, liberty is freedom within the broad boundaries of God's moral law. The cultural Marxist liberty is the freedom to do anything you want to do as long as you don't harm anybody else and as long as you're in line with the state and statism. Two very different views. That, you see, is foundational. So, <clears throat> um, behind much of cultural Marxism is a way of thinking that you need to understand, and that is critical theory. So we're going, uh, let's see, Nathan's here. Is it 3.30 we're going to, guys? Okay, got it, till 3. Got it. Okay, so I'm going to, um, you know what I think I'm going to do? If we're going to 3, which is in about 15 minutes, I'll try to address critical theory, perhaps, and some of the answers, but I have said a whole bunch in that time, so we've got about 15 minutes. I would like to take some questions. Any of you that have questions, please...